And the man who loves God will receive a crown of life. And uh, he gives us a motivation for keeping on the journey, for keeping on the right path, for responding to the circumstances of life with obedience and so forth. Uh, this morning we're going to begin in James chapter 1, verse 13, especially the first three verses as we get started. So says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would guide my thoughts and words, that they might be your thoughts and words. And I ask, God, that you would be exalted once again through the preaching of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, As I see in this text of Scripture, we'll be reminded of at least three truths as we go through it. Um, The first one is that God tempts no man. We see that very clearly in verse 13, and we'll come back to that. Number two, people are tempted by their own evil desires. And number three, sin will eventually bring forth death. Um... It's one thing to consider as we think about our own lives um, that we have to once in a while evaluate our actions. We need to somehow look internally and ask ourselves why we do what we do. And it's uh, an important thing to be honest with ourselves. It's really easy not to be honest with ourselves. It's really easy to point out the faults in others more than it is our own selves sometimes. And we need to be honest about that. So, in the beginning of our study, we looked at the word tempted, and we saw that it was a general word describing trials and struggles. And we saw that way back in verse 2, it says, Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing." We said that the word tempted in those trials there in the beginning is is kind of a general way of describing the various circumstances of life that come our way. It's the situations that we don't pick. It's the things that we would not choose if we were forced to. It's the things that God allows in our life. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to them? And uh, I don't know about you, I was talking with Paul this week and I said, you know, it's amazing when you preach on stuff like this that God's going to put you to the test. Uh, my brother first uh, shared that with me years ago, uh, probably about nine years ago now. My brother went through cancer. And uh, as he was going through, can- or, uh, going through the book of Job, uh, of all books, he's preaching through the book of Job at his Christian school where he teaches. And he says, man, I just know something's going to happen. He said, you can't preach through the book of Job and not expect these things and these principles to be put to test in your own life. So he said, as I'm going through it, he said, I'm just waiting for something to happen. And then it did. God allowed him to go through a period of time with cancer. And, of course, today he's cancer-free. But I was telling Paul, I said, you cannot preach on consider it great joy. Not just consider it joy, but verse 2 says consider it great joy uh, to go through these various trials. And you can't preach on this without expecting some difficulty in your own life. And God has allowed some of those things to come. And it forces us to look internally and say, how am I going to respond to the things that I would not choose? To the things that I would not pick? To the things that I don't enjoy and I will not enjoy? How am I going to choose to respond? 
Because on so many things in life, we cannot choose, but we have to choose how we're going to respond to them, right? So we have an opportunity to respond. And I also said a couple weeks ago that when we have these circumstances, it's an opportunity every time one of these things come for us to look to God and say thank you. Because it's another day of life and another day of breath that God has chosen to let something come your way to refine you, to make you better than you are, to make you more like Him, right? So as we're going through these things, I don't know about you, but it seems like these things are going to be tested as we go through. So are we considering it great joy when we go through these things that we would not pick? So, in the beginning, this is a general term. But based on the ending of the Greek word, it changes slightly. So, in the text here today, the word is used in context with an opportunity, a solicitation, if you will, or an invitation to do wrong. So, he says here in verse 13, no one undergoing a trial. So there's the word, the trial, once again. I'm going to use a little bit different context. So now this word trial has the idea of being solicited or an invitation given to you to do wrong. Once again, how are we going to choose to respond? So here's the interesting aspect of the principle. If a person responds correctly, obediently, trusting God through the temptation, he gains what? Endurance. And we said to those that love God, he also gains what? A crown of life. However... If, a, if, the, if he responds incorrectly without faith and doubting, he has responded disobediently and he is tempted to what? Sin. And right response leads to endurance. Wrong response leads to sin and death according to the text. So we have two realizations here. Temptation is common to man. Every one of us are going to be tempted in this sense to do wrong at some point in our life. Uh, whether it's on a regular basis or whether it's on a sporadic basis, every one of us are tempted in difficult circumstances to do wrong. How are we going to choose to respond? But we have to know that it's going to happen. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation He will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. So guess what? When you go through times of temptation, you're not alone. It is a common thing for everyone to experience the temptation of life. And so we have to respond once again with obedience. In fact, it was so common, it was even common to our Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, our Lord was tempted. It was something that everybody deals with. It's something that you'll continue to be dealt with, or deal with. And uh, it's something that we need to learn from the beginning to respond correctly. That's why he says, way back in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider. In other words, your mind is to be made up because the temptation is going to come, right? So he said there are trials that are going to come and in the language of the original language, it has the idea of not when or if, but when. So it's inevitable. And now he takes it one step further. Not only are you going to experience the trials, but you are going to experience temptations. Every one of us will. And we need to have in our minds already in advance how we are going to respond to those things. So, two realizations. Temptation is common to man. And number two, our Lord was tempted. So we, if He's going to be tempted, we definitely are going to be tempted as well. So when temptation is handled correctly, uh, rationalization, justification, or excuses begin to flow. 
Isn't it amazing how we can justify what we do? Isn't it really easy to, to come up with a rationalization of why this aspect of this temptation is okay? Uh, it comes so naturally and so quickly that it's almost just, uh, it just flows out. But worse yet, blame shifting begins to happen. Taking responsibility for the incident is usually not on the program. Think about this. Uh, in fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 just for a moment. You'll see where all this began. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to find out that the blame shifting game, uh, the, the, the consideration of why I'm doing what I'm doing, the, uh, the justification, the rationalization, it starts way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, actually, verse 11. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I command you not to eat from? I mean, it's a simple, straightforward question, right? Did you do this? Then the man replied, The woman you gave to be with me. That excuse is still being used today, I think, in some cases. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, It was the serpent who deceived me. And I ate. So nobody wants to take responsibility for the things that they've done, right? I mean, Adam, did you eat the tree? I mean, there's, there's an obvious thing that is happening here. Did you eat from the tree? Well, God, the, the woman you gave me. And the woman is, well, well, did, well, why did you do this? Well, the serpent. The blame game is still happening today, is it not? It's really easy to point to other people and to have a reason to blame to justify why we do what we do. And I think what we need to learn from this is that the blame game doesn't go so far. See, sin still has a consequence. In fact, Galatians 6 tells us, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. See, oftentimes God gives us the opportunity to make choices. But we don't have the opportunity to figure out what are going to be the consequences of those choices. And we need to understand that constantly. In fact, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, it, it was constantly being practiced, the, the, the blame game that is, and the, and the shifting of responsibility. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you see something else taking place here. And look at verse 14. Samuel replied, then what is the sound of sheep and cattle I hear? Remember the command that was given? I want you to go out and to not just destroy, but to utterly destroy. You are to leave nothing behind. I mean, God says annihilate, and He says, I want nothing left behind. And Samuel comes and approaches Saul, and he says, what's the sound of sheep that I hear? And the cattle. Pretty straightforward question. Verse 15. Saul answered, the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep and the cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we destroyed. I mean, so it wasn't only that the troops did it. Lord, we did this for you. I mean, we're doing this for God. Amazing what happens in the name of God sometimes. And God has nothing to do with it. His command was clear. And so, point taken once again is that there needs to be a responsibility that is taken for the circumstances of life when decisions are made. And even more egregiously is the idea of blaming God for our circumstances. And he makes that very clear in James chapter 1. In verse 13 he says this, No one undergoing a trial should say, 
I am, be temp- I am being tempted by God. That's the worst thing that we can do. Because God does not tempt any man. Very clear. In fact, throughout Scripture, man has blamed God. And the very fact that he says that it's taking place and not to do it, or the very fact that he says not to do it, insinuates that it does take place. And we need to guard ourselves that even we don't sit there and say, well, God, this, what, what else was I to do? I mean, God, you understand, I had this situation, I had to do this. No, we are always responsible for our choices, are we not? We are always responsible for our choices. In fact, look at Proverbs chapter 19 just for a moment. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs chapter 19, and verse 3, it says this, A man's own foolishness leads him astray. Let me read that again. Sometimes there's words that God puts in, in, in Scripture that are just straightforward, and they almost, ugh, they almost hurt, don't they? Because we want to blame somebody. We want to have a reason for why we did what we did. But in some, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, it says, A man's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Almost as to say, well, hey, Lord, I mean, you did this, you allowed this, I mean, you could have stopped it if you wanted it to. But we blame, because it's just the heart of man. It's the nature of man to have to blame somebody for things that go wrong in his life. And we need to be careful with that. And then over again in Isaiah, chapter 8, and verse 21, it says this. It says, I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn... Oh, that's that's Jeremiah. That doesn't work so well. Isaiah, chapter 8. Let's try that again. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 21 says this, They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Somehow, some way, this is your fault. It once again comes down to our nature. Our sin nature. We have to understand that everything has a purpose in a, in a, in a, and it's part of God's plan for our lives. God makes no what? Mistakes. We either believe that or we don't. And oftentimes, as he says, man's own foolishness is what drives him. And we're going to see that again in our text in just a moment. But the bottom line is every day we go through circumstances and experiences and we need to take responsibility for them rather than blame-shifting, or even more egregiously, blame, blaming God for what He has allowed in our life. Because once again, this goes back to a principle that we've learned many times over, or been reminded of many times over, is that God in His sovereignty allows things that we would not pick, that we would not choose. If God is powerful, and we know that He is, God could stop certain things from happening in our lives. He could stop the illness. He could stop the trial. He could stop the financial situation. He could stop all these things if He wanted to. But by the very fact that He allows them, says what? He's working in our lives. And we have a choice to make. We can either blame the circumstances or blame the situations on God, or I can say, you know what? This is something I need to learn from. This is something I need to... Look internally and see what, if there's something that I'm doing wrong, something that I have, or some sin that I'm involved with that I need to deal with. Why is man so easily enticed to sin? 
Well, it begins way back in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, For all have what? Sin. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. The bottom line, we are born with a sin nature. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 4 says this. But let, uh, or James verse 1, 14 says this. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away, enticed by his own evil desires. Let's stop right there just for a moment. What does that insinuate? What does that presuppose of our, every one of us in this room? When we sin, it's not just, oops, it's an accident. I didn't mean for that to happen. Wow. No, what, what's it insinuate? What does it presuppose? Every man is tempted when what? When he is drawn away. Now it gets back to my mind. It gets back to my focus and what I'm looking at. And really, in fact, Romans chapter, I believe it's chapter 8, really says it very clearly. He that sets his mind on the things of the flesh does so purposely. Why? Because to set something on means that I am purposely doing it. There's no accidents involved. Well, I didn't mean to do it. No, we do it because we enjoy it. We do it because we have a sin nature. We do it because that's what comes natural to our flesh, apart from the Holy Spirit working within us. So the bottom line is there's not an accident. We are tempted when we are drawn away and enticed. The word enticer is an interesting word. It has the idea, uh, it's, it's actually like a fishing term. It's almost like there's a lure, and that lure is being cast into that little deep spot over there in, in the brook. And as soon as that lure hits the water, what does it do? Depending on the lure and depending on what type of fish you're going for, you jiggle it or, or reel it in or whatever you do. But what's it doing? It's enticing the fish to take the bite. That's exactly the picture that you're to have as you look at that word entice. There are some temptations that happen to us that we can't control. And then there are other temptations that are actually a solicitation, an enticement to do wrong. And that's what we need to guard against. So, it's the idea of a, of a fish being uh, drawn away from its nest into the net to be caught from safety to death. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 14, uh, he talks about the same word again. 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 14, is the same Greek word. Uh, verse 14 says, they have eyes full of adultery and are always looking for sin. Isn't that a shame? They're looking to do wrong. They are looking to be involved in something that is sinful. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse, he says. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosar, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but received a rebuke for his transgression. A donkey that could not, talk, could not talk spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. The bottom line is what? They are enticed, and it's something that is done purposefully. That's the nature of man. Man's nature is that he is a sinful man, and only apart from, only by God's grace can we change that in our life. We need God so much. Sin often looks so amazing at first, does it not? I mean, think about it. How many times do you see a beer commercial on TV where it just is like, oh, this is a drag. Nobody wants to drink this stuff. 
I mean, think about it. Every year, the best commercials or the funniest commercials for years were the what? The Budweiser commercials. It sounds so appealing. I mean, it looks like so much fun. But what they don't tell you is the headache that you get afterwards. They don't tell you about the money that you wasted because you were too drunk to stop. They don't tell you about the families that are broken up because of drunkenness and the alcoholism that it destroys families. Years ago, I had a Sunday school teacher who was still at my home church who was on a plane and he sat next down to, as he often did, would sit down in that first section there and he would talk with everybody that was around him. And on one particular trip, he sat down with Mr. Bush of Anheuser-Busch. And as he began to talk about their businesses and what they did for a living, come to find out, Mr. Bush looks at Mr. Rodebaugh and he says this. He says, no, I don't drink. He says, beer is to be sold, not drink. It was a business. It was a moneymaker. And they learned to do that well. What they don't tell you is that it destroys. Family after family after family. Life after life after life. But it looks so good at front. Or how about alcohol? Or I mean, our drugs. Drugs make you feel so good at first. Uh, how many times do you talk to someone who's been involved in a life of, of, of uh, drugs? And at first it makes them feel so good and they can take their mind off the struggle, minds off the problems, minds off the, off the situation at hand. And they can for a little while just kind of pretend it's not there as they're experiencing the effects of the drugs. But what they don't tell you is once again how it destroys lives, how it robs people of their finances, how it destroys relationships. But it looks so appealing at first. Or how about immoral relationships and pornography and affairs? At first, it sounds like it's so much fun. It's a secret. Nobody else knows about it. And they have this adrenaline rush because nobody else knows about it. And I'm doing something that's secretive. And it's something that brings me personal satisfaction and joy. And yet, when sin as it is finished, what? Destroys and kills. Sin does always look so awesome in the, at the beginning. Talks about the lust here. We were all slaves of this at one time. In fact, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and I love this past tense language here. It says, And you were, past tense, dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens. The Spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all, once again, previously lived among them in our own fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as others were also. But I love that next two words. But God. Were it not for the grace of God, that's where we would still be. Living according to the things of this world, living according to the flesh, apart from Jesus Christ. Over in chapter 4, in verse 17, it says this, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Think about that. There's a change that takes place. And I say, praise God for that. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. That's our sin nature. That's the flesh apart from Jesus Christ in it. 
But notice the progression of how sin progresses in us. We said earlier that sin lures. James chapter 1, verse 13 again. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And talking about this idea, the word tempt here is that he does not entice anybody to do wrong. So verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. First of all, there is an enticing that takes place. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 3. I mean, if you just eat of this fruit, and and God himself knows that when you eat of this fruit, here's the justification, you'll be as God. It entices us. It makes us think that it'll be better after the fact. The drugs will help us become better. The alcohol will help us become better. The immorality, the pornography, the the immoral affairs, they'll, they'll help us feel better. No, they won't. It's a temporary fix with no lasting benefits. It leads to a life of struggle and more pain and more sinfulness. So there's allurement, there's an enticement, and then there's a deceiving. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3 says... But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a, com- from a complete and pure devotion to Christ. Where does it start here? It teaches that it starts within the mind. And deception starts in the mind. And we have to guard our minds for both good and evil. We need to guard our minds. So sin lures, it entices, and sin deceives. And then number three, sin tries to satisfy. Satisfy desire God's way is what we need to do. Um, let me look at just a couple of verses here. Romans chapter 12. We touched on this this morning in Sunday school. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God? Once again, if you want to have discernment, it starts within the mind. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Very familiar verse. I'm sure many of you know this. Philippians 4, verse 8 says this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. That's where our mind needs to dwell, on the things that are pleasing to God. Um, God wants to do His good pleasure in us. Sometimes we have this mindset that you know, God is up in heaven kind of doing His own thing. He's just kind of left us out there nebulously kind of just to live life and kind of just... Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out His good purpose. God is not just out there nebulously doing His own thing. God is not just a, a being that is out there just kind of letting mankind just kind of go however it will and whatever happens, happens. For the child of God, God is at work. And it says here, He gives us both the desire and the ability to do His good will. But see, there's the struggle. His will versus our will. That's the struggle. That's the hard part. 
And to do His will means I have to surrender mine. And that's not always easy. In fact, Genesis chapter 39, you remember this. Um, Joseph. Let me just read this verse here. Genesis 39, verses 8 and 9. It says, But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house. And he has put all things that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife, so how could I do such a great evil and sin against God? That's really what it has to come down to. As we look about life, as we go through this, the circumstances of life, we need to ask ourselves, how can I do this great wickedness, this evil, and sin against God? It really comes down to our nature. We have a sin nature, but what will we do with it? Will we surrender it to God's will or continue to do it what we want? You see, if we surrender it to God's will, He's going to work His good will through us. But if we hold on to it, we're going to continue to give in to the, the opportunities of the flesh. And Joseph really had the right idea. God, <laughs> this is not worth it. This temporary satisfaction, this little bit of sin, is not destroying, worth destroying my relationship with God. That's how we have to view it. God is more important. God is better. So we know what the nature of man is. The nature of man is to, in his flesh, justify, rationalize, excuse his sinful behavior. Oftentimes blaming others and even blaming God. That's his nature. But the nature of God, we see this in, in a part of our text that we'll get to in a few weeks. James chapter 1, verse 17 says this. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow cast of by turning. See, we serve a God that doesn't change. We serve a God who is perfect, who is holy, who is righteous. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, I'll not take time to read it, but he says, I'm God, I change not. Hebrews 13, 8, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God that doesn't change. And what his expectations were for man way back in the beginning, guess what? Hasn't changed. He still wants us to be holy as he is holy. And we need to seek what is best. Look back in our text here in James 1. Verse 14 says this, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. The question we need to ask ourselves, what are our desires? If our desires are based in the flesh, they'll not turn out well for us. But based in the Spirit, there's hope, there's life, there's joy. But if we're in sin, it's because we've allowed our focus to get off of God. That's what this verse presupposes. He's tempted when he's drawn away, when he's allured away, when he's enticed by his own evil desires. And sometimes we need to ask God to change our desires. You ever thought about that? God, will you change my desires? My flesh wants this, but God, I know that this is better. Do we pray like that? Because that's what it really takes. 
asking God to do in and through us what we cannot do in and of ourselves. We are not strong enough, not one of us in this room. We've seen the greatest of Christian giants fall in a moment of weakness. It happens every day all around the globe. Wonderful, strong, spiritually gifted men and women and children who walk with God and in a moment of weakness give in to the greatest of sins. We cannot do it apart from God's help and His working in us. And that's why it starts with, God, will you change my desires? Because God, my flesh wants this, but I know that this is better. Do we pray that way? Because that's what it's going to take. Then verse 15 here says this. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Which is exactly what we started with. How does sin lead to death? Well, when we give in to the temptation and we respond disobediently, sin will take root and it will destroy. But when we give in to fighting it and saying, God, we want you to be on the throne, then there's a different result. And going on here, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dearly brothers, dear brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow of turning. Think about this. God doesn't change. What is best for us is still best for us. Matthew chapter 7, and beginning with verse 7, says this. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. What's the principle here? Seek what is best. Seek what is good. Seek what is from God first. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. It's not in satisfying our flesh, as we learn in James 1. It's not about responding in the flesh. It's all about responding in the Spirit. And in Luke chapter... 11 and verse 13 says if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him we need to be seeking the things that are best seek those things which will glorify god seek those things that will be beneficial and good for us versus the things that we may want Let me just close with this in our text in James chapter 1. I don't know what kind of things that you're involved with. See, the beautiful thing about this is that you and God know what those things are. I don't. But I know this. I'm responsible for what I do like you're responsible for what you do. And here's the thing. We'll all give an account of the things that we do. And you will not stand before me. You'll stand before God. And 
At that point, when we stand before God, I wonder, as a question has been asked before, and I don't know who originated it, I wonder what excuses will be valid. What justifications will be valid? What rationality will be valid for the things that we do that are sinful, that are fleshly, that are selfish? He says very clearly, you can't blame God because he doesn't tempt anybody. So if God is out of the equation, who's left? My own sinful desires, my own flesh. And if I'm giving into it, it's because that's where my desires are. If I'm giving into what's being presented, enticed me, what is enticing me, then it tells, tells me what my true desires are. tells me what my true character is. And that's what we have to deal with. But here's the thing. Only God can change a heart. Only God can change your desires. But I think a lot of it starts with us wanting God to do that. See, it's real easy to come to church every week or every so often and say, well, I feel good because I was in church. And then go back to what we came from. It's a a seven-day-a-week thing. Church is not Sundays. Church is not just for a certain day of the week or a certain time of the month that we go and want to do a little bit of religion or spiritual spirituality. It's a daily thing of walking with God, saying, God, I need your spirit to work within me. God, I need your filling because right now I really want to strangle this person. Right now I really want to yell at that person. Right now I really want to hit that person. Pastor, you're violent. Yeah, just like you. And apart from God, you're going to respond in the flesh. But with the Spirit, all things are possible. So we need God now more than ever. Daily. To say, God, work your will in and through me. Removing all excuses. Removing all the blame. Taking responsibility for who I am before a holy and righteous God. No excuses. So I can't blame God. I have to acknowledge where my sin starts within me. And then verse 15, realizing that if it's not dealt with, it doesn't have good results. The consequences are fatal if we don't correct. And the only way you can do that is by surrendering our will to God. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't, I don't really need to know those. But God knows, and he says in Hebrews that all things are naked and open before God with whom we have much to do. You can't hide what you're going through from God. Talk about ultimate accountability. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from God's eye. How many times in Scripture have people tried to run from God? I mean, how did that work for Jonah? Uh, how, how, how did responding in the flesh work for Moses? I mean, think about it. You can run, but you can't hide. God knows. At some point, God will say, how much longer? How much longer will you blame? How much longer will you respond in the flesh? How much longer will you uh, rationalize your sin? How much longer will you try to not deal with it? It's just time to deal with it. Whatever it is. Say, God, I surrender. And lay it all at his feet. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege once again just to look at your word and to know that it's still true today as it was hundreds of years ago. Lord, to know that you're the same God that we read of in Genesis who created this world and that you haven't changed. Your love for us hasn't changed. Your expectations for mankind has not changed. Lord, you still love us the same. Lord, I pray that we'd help be, uh, Lord, that you'd help us to, Lord, to be honest. It's so easy to look at our own lives and compare ourselves with the lives of others. Lord, I don't, I don't steal like they do. I don't kill like they do. I don't, Lord, whatever it is, lie or cheat or whatever like they do. But Lord, we fail to realize that people are not our comparison. Jesus Christ is. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to be honest. It's not about how good we think we are or how bad we think we are. We're all sinners saved by grace. And our flesh is strong. And our desires are strong. But the Lord daily surrender our rights. To daily yield to your will is something that we cannot do in and of ourselves. We need your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit to be working in and through us constantly. And Lord, apart from that, we allow ourselves to be caught up in sin. We choose to sin. And we put distance between you and us because of that sin. And Lord, today we just need to surrender. No more blaming, no more justifying, but simply saying, God, you work. So Lord, would you work in our hearts this day? As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, just ask for a moment that no one be looking around. But just simply be an opportunity to respond to what you've heard this morning. Say, Pastor Ken, if I'm honest with myself, I've got a lot of things I'm dealing with, a lot of sinfulness that I've chosen to be a part of, sin that I've uh, embraced in my life, I've justified it, I've, I've rationalized it, I've made excuses for it. But today, I want to surrender it all. I want God to work in my life. I want God to change my heart, change my desires. God's worked in my heart. He's convicted me this morning. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes. Yes, in the front, in the back. In the front here, yep. Anyone else? The pastor, pray for me. Anyone else? Yes, in the front. No more, no more justifying it. No more excusing it. No more rationalizing it. No more blaming others. We have to take responsibility for our own choices. Anyone else say, Pastor, pray for me. That's my desire. Yes, in the back. Yes, in the middle. Yep. Can I challenge you? I'm going to pray in just a moment. I don't need to know what you're going through. God knows that. In fact, you can't hide it from Him. He knows what that is. But this morning, if God has convicted you with an area of sin in your life, can I just challenge you to deal with it right here and now? Don't wait till later. Just right here and now say, God, you brought this to my mind. You brought this to my attention. God, please forgive me. I, 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 I apologize, God. I, I, God, forgive me of my sin. Talk to God. He's the best one to talk to regarding these circumstances. Too long we've been enticed. We've been drawn away by our own desires, our own sinfulness, our own fleshliness. I say, God, today it stops. Today I surrender to you. I challenge all of you that have raised their hand in your heart towards God. 
Just simply talk with God for a moment. Say, God, forgive me. And the beautiful thing is this. No matter what the sin that you're struggling with, no matter what the excuse, no matter what the justification, no matter what the rationale, God's Word says in 1 John 1 that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The process, I have to confess it. And to confess it means that I not just acknowledge it, but I turn my back on it. And God says, when you do that, when you come to me, if you confess your sin, I will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But that's the starting point. Simply acknowledging it, asking God to forgive you of it, confessing it before him and saying, God, you forgive me. Just talk with God for the next 10 seconds. Just, just talk with God. He knows your heart. You bear your heart to him. Let's all stand to our feet just for a moment.